0: What do people impacted by mental illness look like? Like all of us. Mental health affects us all. We are Cap, and we want to join the conversation. Well, good morning. I hope you're, hope you're sitting beside somebody you can cuddle up to, because it is cold in here, uh, and a series on depression may not increase your temperature, I'm not sure, but uh, this will probably be read wrong politically and everything else, but I really like being in the gym, because you're much closer in, like, you know, Buzz, you're way up in the back 40 there in the other room, but look at you, like, you're going to catch... You're gonna catch the saliva today, it's awesome. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so welcome. And if you're new to church, or uh, you don't come to church very often, uh, typically in churches on Sunday morning we do these things called sermons, uh, which are interesting things. Um, but this month and last February, we are not doing sermons, we're doing talks on mental health. So this is mental health month, and so if you're looking for a sermon, you're not going to get one because uh, this is not a sermon, this is a talk, and um, one of the reasons we're doing this is because a lot of us have issues personally, as I talked about last week, my own battle with depression, And some of us have family members, some of us have friends who struggle with depression. And so last February we talked about anxiety. If you go on the website of CAP, you'll get uh, both the four messages as well as a couple of videos on the topic topic of anxiety. And this year we're talking about depression. And so last week we talked about a cultural perspective on depression. If you weren't here, there's notes at the back. You can go online and see all the things that uh, were on last week. And uh, today we're going to talk about a psychological perspective on depression. Now I think those of us who talk up front, some of you do this at work, uh, do seminars or workshops or presentations, if you can't summarize what you're going to do in one sentence, you're probably not ready to speak. So that's a challenge I give to all of you who give presentations. If you can't summarize in one sentence what you're going to say, then you shouldn't be up there yet. You haven't done enough preparation. So let me give you my one-sentence summary of what my goal is today. So when you walk out today, this is what I hope you will uh, have achieved and what I will have achieved in this presentation. That we will approach mental illness recognizing the importance of the inner life... And that when we're dealing with other people who are struggling with mental illness, we will recognize the importance of their inner life. That's my goal. Two parts. That when we look at mental illness, we'll take the inner life seriously. And when we deal with those who are struggling, we will take their inner life seriously. Now, I want to start by uh, analyzing the title, A Psychological Perspective on Depression. Uh, those of you who have any uh, experience in the Greek language will know that the word psychology is made up of two words psyche and logia. Psyche is simply, and it's translated various ways over a long period of time, it's simply spirit, soul, breath, inner life. You can call it whatever you want. And over many, many years, the word psyche has been used by all kinds of people. Logia is the study of. And so when we use the word psychology, we're actually talking about the study of psychology. Some of you have taken psychology courses, some of you had an intro psych course in university, and it was called psychology because it's the study of the psyche. Now the formal field of psychology only started in about 18, in the 1890s. Most people will trace the date when you look at the history of psychology to 1896. So the field is different than the psyche. Okay? One is the study of, but the psyche has been around since we've been around. The inner life is part of all of us. Everyone in this room has an inner life. I have an inner life. And so psyche is not a word that necessarily applies to the discipline that started in 1896. Now, when we recognize the psyche, it requires a number of things of us. First of all, it requires us to focus on the inner life and not just what is seen. We are obsessed, those of us who are parents in particular, we have a special gift in this area. We are obsessed with people's behavior and what we can see. The psyche is not about behavior and what can be seen. It's about the inner life. Secondly, if we believe in the inner life, we don't negate it by submitting it to analyses that are our view of the discipline of psychology. One of the phrases, having been a psychologist for close to 40 years, uh, one one of the phrases I've heard a lot over those 40 years is psychobabble. So some people, when they hear about the inner life, they immediately say psychobabble. Well, what they're confusing is the inner life with the field of psychology and with the discipline of psychology. And so when we believe in the inner life, we're not talking about the field of psychology. We're just acknowledging the inside. As a Christian and identify myself as a Christian, as a Christian, one of the things that is very interesting about the Bible is the Bible is not solely a book on behavior. Now, most churches don't believe that. Many churches are obsessed with behavior, and in many churches, you can't belong unless you behave properly. Some of you have been there, done that. The Bible is not a book solely on behavior. It is a book on the outer life, but it's also a book on the inner life. And in fact, if you're a careful reader of the Bible, particularly a careful reader of Jesus, you'll get the sense that Jesus is more concerned about your inner life than your behavior, which is a little disconcerting for all those in the group and may be highly spiritual. I talked about you last week, and you've been avoiding me since. But for the hyper-spiritual people in the group who love looking at Christian behavior, one of the things you can tell about Christians who are obsessed with Christian behavior is they haven't read Jesus much. Because Jesus is more concerned with what's going on inside. The inner life is Jesus' obsession. And so we need to be careful with our obsession with behavior. And lastly, when we believe in the inner life, we recognize that we need wisdom to speak into people's inner experience. I'm an old guy, so when I mention technology or I mention the information age, a lot of people say, oh, that's because you're, you know, 66 and blah, 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 blah. But you know what? One of the problems with the internet age is a lot of us think that the more information we have, the better off things are going to be. And that, my friends, is not true. What this world needs is not more information, it needs more wisdom. What this world needs is not more smart people, what this world needs is more wise people. What we need is a great degree of wisdom to navigate the inner life. And often people who are committed to information and not to wisdom have trouble accessing the inner life, both their own and others. And so this is a really, really important thing. So when we don't take the inner life seriously, what what do we do? We look at what seems to be. So it's hard to believe that comedians battle depression. It's a very high incidence of depression amongst comedians, but it's hard for us to believe that because they're happy, they're fun, they laugh a lot, they seem like they have life together. It's very hard for us to believe that celebrities and athletes, remember when that Vancouver uh, hockey player committed suicide a number of years ago, people are like, wow, he shoots a puck and he struggles with depression and he died by suicide. Like we're shocked because somebody wears skates and could shoot a piece of rubber that they have problems with depression. Why is that? Because we're obsessed with what seems rather than what is. Leaders and people in public positions who seem confident and have their life together and articulate. Uh, even after last week, I've had a few people say to me, like, I'm I'm really surprised you struggle with depression. Because you don't seem like that. Well, what does it seem like to look like? What does that mean? Seem. Seem is what we see. It's not what's going on inside. And then as we'll talk about next week, we talk about a spiritual perspective on depression. Many Christians, and many Christians in leadership battle depression, and they're serving God, and they're encouraging other people, and they value their faith. So the inner life is something that we need to pay attention to. And when we miss that, we miss an understanding of depression. Now, I love Robin Williams. I know some of you are offended by his language. You don't like the u- words he uses in some of his sketches, but I like Robin Williams. And just in case you've forgotten Robin Williams, who passed away five years ago, uh, let's watch a little bit of Robin Williams. So many incredibly funny moments, from movies to stand-up to TV appearances, his rapid-fire, over-the-top style, really unmatched by anyone. In addition to his Oscar, he won four Grammys for his comedy albums, and this morning, just a few of our favorite funny moments. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. <laughs> look at this thing. Look, Flipper. <laughs> <laughs> they have signs. They have big signs that say, You will not get into the kingdom of heaven. And I look at these geeks and go,
1: Are you going to be there?
0: <laughs> I'm not going. I did Waiting for Godot. Oh, I yeah. did Shakespeare. I've it's exciting to wear tights and have people go, I can't see anything. <laughs> Just take on Oh, kind of, dear, if you are like that handsome, rugged tight. <laughs> but personally, I prefer short, furry, and funny. <laughs> Can you tell us what you've found out about the enemy since you've been here? We found out that we can't find them. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do fussy, fussy, fussy. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Twyla, Twyla, Twyla. Or Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd. Or Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. But you keep it all inside. Lawrence, you, you saw, you saw what he did. Just Who's stand. evolved? I am. Who's evolved? I am. You know what? Let's go over to the bus station and pretend we're going someplace. Come on. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll make those announcements. You never understand. Like... Uh, blah, 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 blah. I want the guy who does soccer to do golf one time. Uh. The body's rolling. The body's rolling. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> those models are like deer in a song. <laughs> <laughs> they walk by just like this, like, hello. <laughs> Mr. Alonzo, what will your pleasure be? Let me take your order, jot it down. You ain't never been like me. <laughs> but I'm not afraid. <laughs> this is Mork, signing off. Till next week, Nano Nano. It's interesting to ask Robin Williams what he thinks of comedians and depression. Look at what he says. I think the saddest people always try their hardest to make people happy because they know what it's like to feel absolutely worthless and they don't want anyone else to feel like that. It's a very profound statement. If you know the life of Robin Williams, you know he struggled for many years with addictions, struggled a lot with depression, and in his latter years struggled with dementia and a Lewy body disease, uh, L-E-W-Y bodies, which is a proton deficiency that affects neurons. And so he was falling a lot. He was having hallucinations. He was having delusions. And, of course, one of the outcomes of Lewy body disease that comes with dementia is more depression. And in the summer of 2014, he died by suicide. And it was sad. I remember we were in the UK, and I remember that morning hearing that Robin Williams had passed away. And it seemed so hard to wrap your head around because it's just funny. I love that one. Wouldn't it be great to have a soccer announcer do golf? Ho! Oh! It just like he's just he makes you laugh, he makes you smile, but he's gone. And there's something haunting about this line that he said when he was alive. If you're that depressed, reach out to someone and remember suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Behind the funny man, Behind this great comedian is almost this profound prediction of what was going to happen to him later in life. A permanent solution for what he called a temporary problem. And then there's J.K. Rowling. Some of you are Harry Potter fans. You like the books. You like the movies. You've enjoyed the Harry Potter uh, writings and enjoyed those movies along the way. And J.K. Rowling is a very interesting person because in her early life, If you know her story, she started writing when she was five, and because of some of her inner turmoil in her life, she decided to live kind of in her imagination and battle depression in in very significant ways. In fact, look what she says about depression. J.K. Rowling, Depression is the most unpleasant thing I have ever experienced. It is that absence of being able to envisage that you will ever be cheerful again. The absence of hope that very deadened feeling, which is so very different from feeling sad, sad hurts. But it's a healthy feeling. It's a necessary thing to feel. Depression is very different. And you know, many of us look at J.K. Rowling's wealth, her fame her influence, her involvement in the literary world with her books, and her involvement now in the Hollywood world with her movies. The woman is fabulously wealthy and is a celebrity. And her life is, for some of us, if we look in the external and look behaviorally, would say, her life has turned around. It's amazing. Isn't it incredible that somebody with depression is just now so popular and a celebrity and famous? But If you know her movies, you will know that one of the characters, and it's not really a character, but one of the things she created was the Dementors. Those of you who are fans of the movie will remember the Dementors. And what she wanted to do in her movies was she wanted to create something that would symbolize her experience with depression. Those of you who are not into imaginative movies or don't watch these kind of movies will probably struggle a little bit with this at the beginning. But but Harry and Dudley are in this little conflict that they were having together. And then all of a sudden, the Dementors arrive. And listen to what she says about the Dementors. Her description of the Dementors that she created in the movies. Dementors are among the foulest creatures that walk this earth. They infest the darkest, filthiest places. They glory in decay and despair. They drain peace, hope, and happiness out of the air around them. Get near a Dementor and every good feeling. Those of you who battle depression, listen to these lines. Get too near a Dementor and every good feeling, every happy memory will be sucked out of you. If it can, the Dementor will feed on you long enough to reduce you to something like itself, soulless and evil. You will be left with nothing but the worst experiences of your life. Watch how the Dementors work. (laughs) 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 What's going on? What are you doing? I'm not doing anything. Get out of here, Dudley! Come on, Dudley! Those of you who haven't battled depression or know Harry Potter movies probably think, what was all that? But those of us who battle depression and watch the Dementors in action, there's something pretty powerful about that. That when depression gets you and when you feel that very dark, painful thing right here inside you, the Dementors are a good description of what that's like. And so if we're going to both understand mental illness generally and understand depression generally, and if we're going to understand the internal life of those struggling with depression, our family members, our friends, people we meet at work, at school, whatever, we need to understand the inner life. So let me leave Robin Williams and leave J.K. Rowling and take you to the office of a competent counsellor. There's lots of incompetent counsellors around, but let me take you to the office of competent counsellor. If you were wondering if you're struggling with depression, and you went to a competent counsellor and were assessed, this is the way a counsellor would think about depression. it's always dangerous to do this kind of thing publicly. So those of you who took intro psych courses, I remember my first intro psych course in 1971, and this, they you know, started with schizophrenia, and at the end of that week I thought, I'm schizophrenic. And then we went to depression, and then we went to anxiety, and by the time the course was over, like I was a, a wreck because I had every single thing as I watched the symptoms. Sort of like horoscopes gone wild, you know, it's that kind of thing. So be careful with this, and those of you who are kind of you know, love using these little devices to diagnose everybody else, I said a competent counselor, not you, okay, with all due respect. Uh, But this is how a psychologist or a competent counselor would think about depression if you went to talk to them. If you said to uh, a counselor that, you know, I feel kind of, I feel a bit flat sometimes, you would not be diagnosed with depression. Because depression is not brief feelings of sadness that you can get over, or you can kind of give yourself a kick in the backside. You know, sometimes, I hate the mornings. I don't know, some of you are morning people. I can't understand you. You make no sense to me uh, at all. I can't stand the morning. Like, you know those posters about... They're often kind of in Christian bookstores. Like, today is the first day of the rest of your life. You know, that's that, not a biblical verse, but they make it, you know, these Christian bookstores, they make it sound like it's the Bible. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Every morning I wake up, It's like today is the last day of the rest of my life. That's what I feel like. Every day the, the alarm goes off and I'm like, oh. And I, I'm just like that in the morning. Not because I struggle with depression. I do struggle with depression. When I'm in my depressed moods, it's very different. But I just don't like the morning. But normally what I just go is, get out of bed, okay, get out of bed, and I get out of bed. That's not depression. Depression typically is characterized by these symptoms present for a significant period of time with a significant number of them. So let me go through these very quickly. First of all, a significant change in appetite, sexual drive, or weight. Those can go up or they can go down. Some people, these things go up, some people they go down but that's often an indication that depression is present. Significant change in sleep pattern. Typically when people struggle with depression, they either have trouble getting to sleep, they have trouble staying asleep, they have trouble getting up. Sleep is disrupted because of the physicality involved in depression. A loss of energy and excessive fatigue. And it's not necessarily physical energy, it's energy in here. There's just a sense of, I don't have what it takes to keep going. I don't have the energy to keep going. That would be assessed as one of the areas. These three typically come together, a feeling of worthlessness, self-reproach, and excessive guilt. A lot of people who struggle with depression start feeling very down on themselves, feeling very flat about themselves. Jan's going to talk in our last session about children and youth, and this is a pretty significant issue for children and youth, where they feel really down on themselves, really feel bad about themselves, feel worthless, and depression uh, can be tied into that. Difficulty concentrating, remembering, and making decisions. Those of us who are kind of over 60, we have problems with those for other reasons. But typically, people who are depressed have trouble in these areas. A lack of motivation and an enjoyment of tasks you normally enjoy. This is a very hard one for those of us who struggle with depression. I love the outdoors. I love sunshine. I love being in blue sky. When I'm outside and the sun is shining and it's blue sky, I'm always talking about the sun is shining and it's blue sky. Not because I like talking about the weather, but I just love the blue sky. And I love sun shining. When I'm in my depressed state and I go outside and there's not a cloud in the sky, it does nothing for me. Nothing. And when people say inadvisedly, oh, you're struggling with depression, you should go and do this because you normally enjoy this, they fail to understand that is the very nature of depression. The things that I enjoy, I am not enjoying now. And I know the depression is overcoming me. A general slowing down of all motor tasks, so people who are depressed tend to walk slower, tend to move slower, a lot of the motor tasks are slowed down, and then lastly, suicidal tendencies. And so with depression often suicidal tendencies will come up and people will consider suicide and because it's so dark you look at the dementors at work here uh with dudley and with harry those dementors are so so intense and so aggressive that you think i feel so hopeless that i'm not even sure i want to continue anymore And one of the things I would say to you, and this comes from all sorts of research and all kinds of backing, and I say this with some competence, I think, and experience. If you've got a family member or if you've got a friend who you think is struggling with depression, do not be afraid to say to them, are you thinking about suicide? Uh, The average person thinks, oh my goodness, I wouldn't want to raise that in case it raises the idea. You don't have to worry about that, just ask, and if there's any indication any indication at all that that's the case, then I would suggest you refer them to somebody who's competent and knows what they're doing. So if you have a family member, a friend, and you think, boy, this depression's getting really heavy, ask that question. And particularly, if they were in that very depressed state and are coming back up again, that is the time when suicide is the most dangerous. Because what is needed in suicide is not just the deep, dark depression, but a little bit of energy in order to move in that direction. And so sometimes people say, I can't believe it. She was, I've had a number of friends uh, die by suicide. And when they were at their worst, they weren't suicidal. But they were getting better. And a lot of us went, I can't believe it. I thought they were getting better. And now this has happened. And so be careful with that. Don't be afraid to ask. And if they do say that this is an issue, then refer them to somebody who can handle it. Now that's general depression sort of a general over uh, understanding of depression the other aspect of depression which up until a number of years ago was called manic depressive illness and is now referred to as bipolar is another set of categories and so people who are bipolar often have these kind of qualities they'll have the depression side but they'll also have these things as well a significant elation and expansion of mood and of course this is where a lot of comedians are bipolar because of this significant expansion of elation and of mood. That's often characterized by irritability and impulsive anger, a hyperactive, highly talkative, highly distractible, and then bad judgments leading to really difficult situations. I've had some connection in my clinical work over the years with people who went into a severe manic episode, drove to the airport, went up to the first counter, bought a ticket, paid on their visa, got on the plane, landed in Rome, got off the plane, and all of a sudden crashed and phoned back to Toronto and said to their spouse, to their father, to their mother, to their child, I'm in Rome. And the parents or the family members are freaking out, but the mania and the hyperactivity was so extreme that they did things were inappropriate. Often that's involving excessive amount of money, spending a lot of money. Inflated self-esteem. Uh, people who are bipolar, often have a great sense they could do almost anything, they could engage in almost anything, and then these involvement in risky activities that can bring painful circumstances. Uh, again, these kind of things are very typical, and then a diminished need for sleep. So if you were to go, again, to a competent counsellor, and I would suggest to you, this like every other profession, uh, being in a profession doesn't make you competent, right? Some of you have taken your car to a car mechanic that wasn't very competent. Uh, Some of you have been to a doctor that wasn't very competent. Some of you have engaged in other professions where people aren't very competent. A competent counsellor looking carefully at depression will use this kind of assessment. Now the other thing that's often talked about in this area, and I want to just park on this briefly this morning, is what is referred to as the cognitive triad, which, t- which does not characterize all depression, but it does characterize a lot of generalized depression. And some of you have battled the kind of depression I battle, which is dysthymia, kind of low grade depression, and it's been there for a long period of time. You will find what I'm about to say will mirror your experience really well. And it's the combination of a negative view of oneself, a negative view of the world, and a negative view of the future. And it goes something like this. Let me give you a, um, let me give you a personal example that's not about depression, and then I'll tie it into depression. Uh, I'm the only male in my family who's not an engineer. My father was an engineer. My brother's an engineer. So when things needed to be done around the house, my father would do it and my brother would do it. And I didn't do it. Nobody sat me down and said, you are not handy. Nobody said that to me. Nobody said, you can't do projects. Nobody ever said that to me. But I picked up in my family of origin that if you're going to do something practical or technical, Obviously, my dad can do it. My brother can do it because they're engineers. And I like talking, and I like the humanities, and I like literature, and I like people. Which doesn't mean engineers don't like people, but some of them don't. Um, I threw that in for no extra charge. Um, but there was just that was the way it was in our family. So I learned very early on that I am not handy. That was my self-statement. That was my self-image. I am not handy. So how did I view the world? And Bev's got a better sense of humor than I do. She could tell you some funny stories. Early in our marriage, I'd fix something around the house and I'd go, oh, what a disaster. And she'd go, what do you mean a disaster? Oh, it's terrible. It's no good at all. So because I've got a negative view of myself, then I start viewing the world that way because I see the world in light of how I see myself. If I'm not handy and I do something well, then it was an easy project. Right? It's like those of you who don't think you're very smart and you got an A in school, you go, well, it was a bird course. The prof felt sorry for me. Like you can't say, you can't come into the world and say, I'm really stupid and get a good mark. Like that doesn't work. If you get a good mark and you think you're stupid, obviously it was a bird course or the prof felt sorry for you or they made a mistake. So what happens is our view of ourselves starts confirming, conforming to our view of the world, so I'm not handy, and then I start viewing the, neg- the future that way. I'll never be handy. And of course, when I did projects at home early in our marriage, and they didn't work out well, oh my goodness! And I would say, "You see?" And Bev would go, "You see what? You see I'm no good at this." And she goes, "Like so what? You're good at a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, but I'm no good at this. And look at it's just terrible." And then I would slip into, "And my dad's coming over tonight." right and then it starts circling right and those of you who battle with depression particularly this kind of depression you know what this looks like now not only have i got a negative self-state but now i view the world negatively now i view the future negatively and because i view the future negatively i view myself negatively and now i view the world negatively and it starts looping and looping and looping and all of a sudden it's a problem so you grew up in a family where you weren't valued you weren't appreciated and you learned not to be valued. You learned not to be appreciated. And then you go to your work. And after you've been at work for a while, you say, my boss doesn't really appreciate me. And my colleagues don't really appreciate me. By golly, nobody in this job appreciates me. And then you start dwelling on that because now your world is consistent with how you view yourself and then you look to the future and say No one's ever gonna like me in this job. I'm gonna quit my job because nobody likes me So you quit your job because no one likes you and then you think you're still worthless and no good And then you go and get another job and before long Nobody likes you in that job and then nobody likes you in that job And there's no future and it just keeps circling around and around and around we sometimes call this people who are highly sensitive Or people with thin skin we have various language we use to describe the externals of this but actually what's going on at the core is this cognitive triad has a continuity to it I feel bad about me I feel bad about the world I feel bad about the future and there's no place to break that loop it just keeps going over and over and over again which can naturally lead to depression now I said at the beginning We need wisdom to deal with this. Not more information. I've given you a bunch of information in the last half hour. Now I want to focus in on some wisdom. And the best place to go for wisdom is to the wisdom literature. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. I'm going to talk about eight proverbs that focus on the inner life and how we need to be sensitive to the inner life. I'm going to give you a few minutes to talk with that neighbor you're cozying up to to stay warm. I'm going to give you a few minutes to talk with your neighbor in a moment about which of these eight hits you the most either encourages you when you hear this proverb you can go oh that's so encouraging or you read this proverb you think oh that's so convicting in terms of the way I do mental illness and the way I help others with mental illness okay so we're going to go through these eight then I'm going to ask you to chat with your neighbor about which one hits you the strongest either as an encouragement or as a conviction Proverbs 14 and 13. And listen to the earthiness of the language in the Proverbs. They're not highly spiritual, this part of the Bible. They're just very much down to earth and very human. Even in laughter, Proverbs 14 and 13. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and rejoicing may end in grief. Isn't that true? Like when you read the wisdom in the, in the Proverbs, you just go, that's so true. Like even in laughter, the heart may ache. Robin Williams, what a classic example of that. Heart aching. But incredible laughter, making all of us laugh as well. Proverbs 18 and 13. To answer before listening, that is folly and shame. A lot of us who don't listen well only listen to behavior. We don't listen to the inner life. We don't hear what's going on behind people's experience. We just listen to their behavior. I love this one. Proverbs 18 and 14. The human spirit can endure in sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear? A crushed spirit. It's one of the reasons some people don't come to church, right? They have a crushed spirit. That's their inner life. And then listen to what's required, Proverbs 20 verse 5, the purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. There's pastoral care that's behavior-oriented, and then there's pastoral care that's insight-oriented, that we're actually able to get behind what's going on and see what's going on in the inner recesses of people's hearts. And then listen to these four in terms of sensitivity. And again, you're thinking about, boy, that's so encouraging to me where I'm at with mental illness, particularly depression, and where I'm at helping others, or which one's most convicting. Proverbs 12 and 18, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Those of us who struggle with depression, you ever been on the receiving end of reckless words? I have. Just reckless words. People just throwing stuff out. All these little things they throw out. And it doesn't bring any healing. It feels like a sword. Listen to the sensual language of this one. Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and healing to the bones. The physiotherapists in the room love this one. Healing to the bones. Right? What a lovely image when we have gracious words. And then listen to the metaphor in Proverbs 25 and 19. Like a broken tooth or a lame foot is reliance on the unfaithful in a time of trouble. You know when, you're, when you've got a problem with a tooth, maybe a cavity, or for those of you who are old like me, a crown's coming out, and it's a crown in with many crowns moment again, and you, uh, you you're chewing you're biting away and then you hit the cavity and as you're chewing you're assuming you can trust your teeth but then you bite down on it. it's like ooh that was awful and the same, uh, sometimes I'll get a, and physiotherapists don't talk to me after, it's not a big problem. But sometimes I'll get out of bed and my leg's asleep and I'll put my leg on the ground. And it's like, oh, you know, my leg, my, my leg was asleep and I can't rely on it. When I took the leg out of the bed and went to lean on it, I trusted that it would be there for me. But it let me down. And isn't this a great image that the, the proverb uses here? That there are some of us who are unfaithful in our relationship with others. When they're in trouble, we're like a broken tooth. When they're in trouble, we're like a lame foot. We're unreliable in times of trouble. You ever had that experience? You've gone through a tough time and you think, wow, I really saw who my friends are now. Who's there for you when you're in trouble? And then last one, again, interesting metaphor, Proverbs 25 and 20. Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on a wound is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. I think this is a specialty for Christians, especially those of the evangelical variety. One of the things we love doing when people are struggling, we love making them feel better. Right? We love making, we sing them happy songs. It's one of the reasons the last place some of us want to be when we're depressed is church. Too many happy songs. Too many songs that are actually in the context of heavy hearts. And when we've got heavy hearts and people sing songs to us, what's going on is we've already got a problem and now you're making it worse by singing songs to us. And notice the image here. If it's a cold day, like if if you're walking outside, it's a pretty cold day today. If you're walking outside and I go and take your coat off, you're already having a problem with the cold day. Now I've made it worse by taking your coat away. And if you've got a wound and I pour vinegar on it, I'm gonna make the pain that's already there worse. I was at a service many years ago and there was a preacher preaching on psychology and depression and hadn't got the foggiest idea what he was talking about. Uh, Talked about incompetent counselors as incompetent preachers too. And I'm gonna yell, so for those of you sleeping, wake up. He said, all of you sitting in the room today that are struggling with depression, the core of your problem is a lack of forgiveness in your life. And it was really nice, like I went in with one problem and came out with two, right? (laughs) It was it was so profoundly helpful, you know, like and people, you gotta come to church, it'll be so encouraging. I thought, I never want to listen to that guy again, and you know what? I haven't. I've never gone back and listened, and he's famous and he's well known, and you know, blah, 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 blah. But it was a stupid comment, excuse the theological phrase. It was a stupid comment. Like every time you have a problem with depression, and I remember going out and thinking, I don't think I have a problem with forgiving. Like, what would that's not what my depression's from. But you see, what he was doing was singing songs. a heavy heart by making a bad thing worse by not being sensitive. So, eight Proverbs. Some of you are sitting beside somebody you like on your left. You don't really like the person on your right, so you turn the other way, that's fine. But mumble with your neighbor, which one is the most encouraging for you or which one is the most convicting for you, and then I'll call you back. We ended our time last week uh, with an older painting from uh, George Frederick Watts called Hope and uh, that's for those of you weren't here that's online so you can have a look at that painting and I want to end today with an old painting as well this this was painted in 1893 uh, by Edvard Munch and uh, a Norwegian painter and if you read Edvard Munch's history he grew up in a family that had a lot of issues with mental illness Uh, there's some reports his father had significant mental illness his sister did and he also struggled with depression a lot himself. And one of the things he was concerned about as an artist, and there's a number of artists in the room who know this whole sphere much better than I do, but one of the things he was concerned about in art was that art would not present the external, but would actually present what was going on inside. So when you look at his paintings, and there's others in this genre, One of the things that his paintings would describe visually was actually what was going on internally. And it was very jarring for people Because most of us like the external, right? It's safer, it's more comfortable, it's at ease. Like, you can imagine me standing up here looking at all of you. Can you imagine if every single thing you were thinking and feeling today was fully exposed to me? That would be pretty scary. I'd probably be handing in my resignation fairly quickly uh, if we all exposed what was inside. So we developed this way of seeming, to go back to my seem word, but actually what's that... Bearing inside is what's actually going on. And so this painting is entitled The Scream. And there's been movies made on this in contemporary culture. And what Munch is trying to capture here is what he felt, and there's some suggestion it's him in that's in this picture in the front. He's actually screaming in this picture internally, but externally it's not known. And it seems to me, again, as art often does, art without words is very instructive. And it seems to me we who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, who recognize that Jesus takes the inner life more seriously than the behavioral life, I wonder if part of our task with mental illness generally and part of our task with those who are struggling with depression, who we know, family members and friends, if we need to pay more attention to the scream. And as we do that... Let's sing these old words. These words are old as well, but they capture that spirit really well. So let's stand and sing with Andrew as we give our final song.